0: Hello friends, welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Steven as always. And um, very grateful and excited to have with us today, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And uh, Jonathan is uh, many of you may or, or or may not know him. He's a, a writer, speaker, activist, uh, a fellow Southerner, North Carolinian, and uh, doing all sorts of amazing uh, work uh, across the, the the kingdom and you know in our in our society, politically, socially, just an example to many of us. And uh, I'll get into more details in a moment but jonathan welcome thank you so much for uh for joining us tonight
1: well it's good to be with you and all the laity
0: yeah that's yeah. right
1: we <laughs>
2: hey,
0: what? yeah and all the la- and all the laity yeah you got you got all of the lady here um so jonathan we, before we hit record a moment ago you, you're in i think you're in the car right now headed back from uh from a, a bit of a, a campaign, um, or part of the poor people's campaign. This might be just a nice intro into, into your work. Can you give us some insight on what to, what you've been up to today and even most recently?
1: Yeah, that's right. I just left, uh, the New Light Missionary Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, people know Greensboro and the rest of the world because it's where the, uh, sit-in movement began during the, uh, 1960s. Uh, but, um uh, uh your listeners should know that the movement continues, and uh, there were about 500 black and white and brown and uh, native and Asian folks in a in a church tonight uh, listening to people who were talking about how uh, their lives are impacted by policy violence in the country today, and uh, we had invited everyone who's running for any public office in this district to hear from them and to— um, and to think about in their campaigns not how to attack the person they're running against, but how to answer the question of how uh, we could work together to make life better for folks who are really hurting. So that's what the Poor People's Campaign is about. It's happening all over the country uh, in 41 states. And uh, we're trying to we're trying to get folks um, not only registered to vote uh, here in this midterm election, but registered for this campaign, which is about a long-term movement to change the moral narrative in this country.
0: Mm. That, yeah, that, that's— Th- that's fantastic. And we'll, of course, link all of you know Poor People's Campaign and, and a, a lot of your you know broader work in the show notes here. But Jonathan, I originally got turned on to, to you, um, your work in Durham, as well as um, some of your books oh, when I was much younger. In fact, I was in high school and I remember uh, reading New Monasticism, which was a, a book you, you wrote. And I forget what year you could tell me, but uh, I remember reading some of Shane Claiborne's work and... Was very much moved by a lot of not only the language, but the, the 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 kingdom a very a, a kingdom mindset and a very here and now this world on earth as mm-hmm. is in heaven and all of the elements that that come along with that including justice um, work with the hurting and and the, you know the least of these and um, it, it seemed not only that you were working hyper locally in your communities um, but but also interested in the broader church and in in you know even nationally yeah. like who are we where do we show up um just for, as a, as a little bit of an intro what kind of a, a original and we're going to get into your new book reconstructing the gospel here in a moment but um wh- where was that that sort of heart and interest initially birth out of um for someone that grew up the way you did mm. where where did a lot of this early you know passion kind of arise out of in your life
1: well um I grew up in the church, and my uh, love for Jesus really is um, deeply tied to those people who love me, um, love me into who I am, love me in such a way that I couldn't imagine myself apart from uh, knowing Jesus and knowing the story that Scripture tells us about who we are. But I had a a real moral crisis when um, 9-11 happened, and uh, when so many Christians in this country, uh, at least in the public square, Uh, We're talking about how we had to uh, pray for our president and support our uh, so-called Christian president as he was taking us into war. And I ended up in Iraq with the Christian Peacemaker teams and was uh, there uh, just on the ground listening to uh, both Christians and Muslims in Iraq. And uh, I'll never forget a conversation I had with uh, one of the pastors of uh, the churches over there. And he said, "Uh, what does the church in the United States say about this war? And I said, well, a lot of the churches I know are, are saying we should support the war because uh, our president's Christian and it's a just war and, you know, we need to support it. And he, he looked very confused and he said, but but haven't you read the scriptures? <laughs> and uh, it's just kind of heartbreaking realization that uh, in so many ways, the faith that matters so much to many of us uh, has been distorted and twisted in in our public life. And so um, I've really been on a journey my whole adult life to try to integrate uh, what matters to me in my heart with how I live in the world. And now I connect with other people who who share
0: this faith. Mm. And many of our listeners will know you from your, your, the hospitality house, um, the Rupa house, which I understand was also sort of birthed, even that, that very name was sort of birthed out of that trip overseas as well. Is, can you give us some context yeah, into right. that?
1: Well, we were uh, traveling on a highway, um, actually very much like the highway I'm traveling on right now, uh, and um, But we were traveling in the middle of a, a war, and uh, one of the cars hit a piece of shrapnel, and it crashed in the middle of the desert in the middle of this war. And three folks in that car split their heads open, and uh, they weren't sure what was going to happen. But a, a car of Iraqis took them to this uh, village, really, in the western desert of Iraq. It's called Rutba. And uh, a doctor there said to them, three days ago, your country bombed our hospital, but we'll take care of you. And when we found our friends and found that doctor and thanked him, uh, we, we we really realized that, um, that you know, they had lived this Good Samaritan story that uh, we grew up, you know, hearing in Sunday school. The people who were supposed to be our enemy had stopped and picked our friends up out of the ditch and saved their lives. And at the end of that story, Jesus says, go and do likewise. So we were trying to figure out uh, how to live out that love that we had received and, and, and really learned what it, what it means from uh, the good Iraqis, the good Muslims, and uh, and uh, we decided to start a, a house of hospitality in, in Durham, North Carolina, and named it after that village. It's called Rupa House.
0: Got it, got it. Yeah, Rupa. Yeah, though that's that's fantastic. Um, so I want to get in. I would imagine when you're when you're dealing with. Hospitality, which is something we've talked about on the podcast, really in the context of the kingdom of God, <clears throat> um, there is a there. We've had a couple of people talk about this idea of a of a transgressive table um, that there's a you know certain elements of of doing hospitality that puts you in relationship with people that you otherwise would not be in relationship with and there's a certain mm-hmm. amount of intentionality that comes with that and part of that certainly spans uh, you know the political the racial the social um, and, and there's a very real here and now element of you know these neighbors were were trying to love and we, we, you know you recognize or folks recognize I'm not like everyone else and other people have different prominent powerful perspectives and you know part of what so this new your newest book to kind of segue here um, is called reconstructing the gospel finding freedom from slaveholder religion and um, you know in the book which was profoundly. convincing, um, for, for I think Stephen and myself, you know, you, you yeah. dive into a lot of the realities of, you know, uh, of racial. Um, you know, first of all, of kind of the the church and, and the, the history of the church in slave what you what you deem slaveholder religion and this very real political racial uh you know issue in history and turmoil that frankly has been embedded even in the church at its worst. Um, and I would imagine a lot of that was kind of birthed out of you know birth out of your experience even you know there in in Durham. What what led you to write the book? Give us maybe a little bit of background and kind of why why this book and why now.
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing these days in all sorts of circles about the way we're divided as a people, divided as a country, divided as a church. And uh, one of the things I've just come to realize as a as a white person who's been discipled by black Christians in America is that, uh, is that a lot of those divisions, a lot of the root of those divisions are— uh, are deeply tied to our racial past, and when it comes to Christianity, they're not the kind of things that people perpetuate and feel guilty about. As a matter of fact, uh, people feel like they're doing their Christian duty when they uh, demonize uh, the the liberals or the socialists or the people who are trying to take over our country. You know, the undocumented people. So all this all this language that gets used is is not you know it's not the kind of uh, sinful thing that people, you know, do in secret and feel bad about. No, it's, it's something people are quite proud of. And, that that, and it's actually, when you pay attention to not just Christian history, but really the, the history of the world, the worst evil is always the evil that we do in the name of good. And uh, part of what I had to reckon with is that um, uh, really the worst evil that's been done uh, in this place where I live, in this country where I live, has been done by Christians because they thought that it was the right and the righteous thing to do. And so um, I was drawn to uh, this distinction that Frederick Douglass made. Um, Frederick Douglass uh, was born an enslaved person, and uh, he said he prayed for freedom for 20 years, and uh, God never answered until he started to pray with his feet. He ran away. And he got free, but it wasn't enough for him to just get free for himself. He, he became an abolitionist and he started working for the freedom of enslaved people, and, and he was really an instrumental voice in the abolitionist movement, probably the most uh, prominent uh, African American of the 19th century. And Frederick Douglass said, uh, between the Christianity of this land, the slaveholder religion of this land, and the Christianity of Christ, I see the widest possible difference. Hmm. And uh, I started to realize that, you know, that didn't go away after the Civil War, that um, while the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, the people who uh, worshipped a God who blessed their enslavement of other human beings didn't stop believing in that God, didn't stop reading the Bible the way they had learned to read the Bible, and that that has been passed down to us, and that so much of the uh, politics of, uh, you know, divide and conquer and— and and ways that white folks have held on to power in this society um, are shaped by that history. And and so it's no accident that Christian nationalism today is is, is one of the central forces in the uh, uh, really politics of hate that we see in the public square, uh, and it has deep roots in this slaveholder religion. So I wanted to grapple with that, to grapple with the way that influences Christians who who don't even think about it, who don't even understand it, uh, but then also to to uh, illuminate, as best as I can, this incredible good news that um, that Douglas and many other people in the 19th century realizes that, that, that there is another way of following Jesus, and there always has been, uh, and that that tradition, too, has been passed on in this country. And so I really wanted to write this book to, to share with uh, the church that I love, with people who I love, that there's the good news of a freedom church. Um that uh, black folks have certainly been our most important teachers, but it's it's included all kinds of people—black and white and brown folks working together. People who really believe in these surprising friendships that happen when we when we when we cross these lines that are drawn on us and the fusion politics that we can live out together in the public square. That that also has a tradition and a history in this country, and I think it's important for us to be lifting it up in these days.
2: Um, Jonathan, thanks for sharing that. I, I'd, I'd love to just kind of read a a, a brief short little, little segment here and have you kind of unpack a little bit for us if that's all right. This, it's, it's particularly talking about this this subtitle here, this idea of slaveholder religion. And um, uh, let's see here, this is in this is on, on your chapter on slaveholder religion. He says, This, more than anything, is the contradiction that white evangelicals in America must face. Far too often, our piety looks like sin to people of color who feel they wear their skin as an invisibility cloak before white evangelicals. When the assumptions of whiteness consistently trump the basic demands of evangelical charity, even a 12-year-old can see the description doesn't match the fact. Something more powerful than simple logic is at work. Um, can you can you unpack the way you, that, that you see this, this idea of slaveholder religion? Yeah, let me just uh, dive into an example that,
1: has been on everyone's minds. Um, you know, we just went through the whole uh, Supreme Court nomination process and all the ugliness around that. If you, if you ask anybody who reluctantly voted for Donald Trump as a Christian in you know, 2016, who a lot of people told me, you know, uh, I don't like a lot of what he says. I don't like a lot of his style, but um, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for him because because he will put conservative justices on the court. And you ask people, well, why do you want a conservative justice on the court? And they say, well, abortion. Abortion has been the issue uh, that, um, especially white evangelicals have been organized around since the late 1970s. If you go back and trace the rise of the religious right and the very highly funded organizing that happened to bring uh, a coalition of conservative white Christians together around this uh, issue of abortion, Uh, It turns out that it—you know, the Roe decision was in 1973. This coalition did not mobilize uh, immediately around abortion, but rather um, it was after the IRS decided to come down on private Christian schools, uh, Christian schools that were essentially segregation academies that said that um, after the civil rights movement and after uh, an integrated public school system began to roll out in this country, they said that they felt like they were losing their culture, that felt like they were losing their values, and they wanted to start schools that happened to be all white, uh, almost, almost all, all across the country, uh, schools that would uh, teach their children the values that mattered to them. Well, some political operatives within the Republican Party who had been looking at how the uh, politics of George Wallace and of uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, had made it possible to build a a coalition of what they called the new right, Uh, they looked at that and they said, here's an opportunity for us to bring white Christians into the fold and to have them believe that they're doing it uh, for their values, that they're doing it to protect their families, that they're doing it to protect the unborn around this issue of abortion. I don't think that it's possible to imagine that kind of organizing and that kind of uh, of, uh, of, of faith mobilization without the history of how the Bible had been misused by uh, slaveholder religion in the 19th century and the way that had been passed down. Uh, it, it just wouldn't be possible uh, to for for people who listen to their uh, uh, black sisters and brothers to think that uh, conservative justices uh, who are going to vote against civil rights, who are going to vote against uh, uh, issues that impact uh, uh, poor people, who are going to vote against issues that impact women, uh, issues that consistently matter to African-American voters, and especially to African-American voters of color, it would be impossible to imagine organizing people around that without that history of division. And I think that's one place where we can see uh, how this has been passed down to us in, in a new packaging. Uh, of course people never frame it as race but it's deeply rooted in this racialized past
0: mm. uh, another quote that that you mentioned well so you talk about this idea of of the slaveholder religion as, as blindness to even our our own racial habits. A, another quick, and I wanted to get you to expound on, on these racial habits, the a quote here, white supremacy doesn't persist because racists scheme to privilege some while discriminating against others. It continues because despite the fact that yeah. almost everyone believes it uh, is wrong to be racist, the daily habits of our bodily existence continue to repeat the patterns of white supremacy at home, school, Work, church, white supremacy is written into our racial habits, and in short, it looks like normal life. Can you expound on that and kind of give us some, yeah. some color on that? What do you mean by these ra- these racial habits, and how do we how do we begin to become aware of them?
1: Well, let me first thank uh, Professor Eddie Gloud from Princeton University, who has uh, written, uh, I think, profoundly and, and, and very. Um, uh, accessibly about racial habits in his book, uh, Democracy and Black. So I would direct people there to, to, to learn more about this. But, but it's, it's essentially the, the, the notion that um, even after uh, the desegregation of um, our public schools and of our you know interstate commerce and our lunch counters and other things that people worked so hard for and, and sacrificed their lives for in the 1960s, that the habits people have of uh being with and associating with other people uh of the same race have uh essentially continued and um sometimes people talk about this as self segregation uh but it's you know it's the way white folks largely uh worship with other white folks if they're christian they uh, uh, their friends are largely other white folks. They um, and and, and uh, familial ties have a lot to do with this. I mean, we we think about systemic injustice as the way that you know past wrongs are passed down through systems. And you know, part of what I think we have to realize is that you know the uh, political example that I was talking about earlier. Uh, one of the reasons that is so perpetuated is because most people talk politics with their close friends and their family in terms of shaping their vision for these things. Uh, that they just don't have white folks, just don't have black friends that they run this stuff by. Or you know, if it does come up at work, they they, they don't have a depth of trust to understand uh, where someone else is coming from. And uh, th- that's the way that I think the the racial habits simply perpetuate the system. That uh, has existed, and nobody has to have any animosity. I think. I mean, right. that's that's the thing I want to say to folk, church folk. I think a lot of good church folk have been well-meaning all along, uh, and and uh, have have thought that they were doing the right thing because it's what you know the Sunday school teacher or mama or daddy or somebody told them. Uh, but when you actually sit down and have the conversation with somebody who's lived a very different reality in this country, uh, part of what you have to grapple with. Is that the very basics that the Sunday school teacher taught you? You know, love your neighbor as yourself uh, is is uh, forfeited when we can't even hear our neighbor, uh, and sometimes can't even see them. So I talk about racial blindness in the book too, because I think I think these habits uh, reinforce a kind of blindness. And and frankly, I think um, what we have to deal with right now is that we are culpable for our blindness. Hmm. Because there are people all across this country who are standing up and crying out. They're saying, I can't breathe. They're saying, Black Lives Matter. They're saying, our families are being ripped apart. We're being deported. They're saying, the, 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 the basic social safety net that's allowed us to survive is being slashed. And if we refuse to listen to those people who are doing all they can to be heard, then uh, then we are, are culpable for our blindness, even though we didn't choose it.
2: Hmm. Jonathan, um, man, this stuff is really challenging. I, I appreciate all your work on this. So it, you talk a lot on this book about, um, your work, uh, and about, uh, the, um, the, the response to the gospel, uh, being well. like you, you described the way of the cross as a, as a form of political engagement. And, uh, when I, when I hear that language, you know, I, I mean, I gotta be honest, i I've, I've maybe it's kind of my I guess Anabaptist like leanings with 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 uh, with politics i I, I get mm-hmm. very uncomfortable like I, I I have to be honest with you i've I've literally never voted. I mean this is the first election I've ever I've ever voted in um I just got registered not too long ago and uh praise the Lord brother I'm grateful <laughs> I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard because like I'm I from where I sit, I mean I have a hard time putting faith in in Politics as a structure that can that can do good, but then I also see that just the the, the blatant irony of my mm-hmm. privileged position. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm wondering, how do you help somebody like me if people feel similar to that? How do you help kind of us just to see uh, that you know political engagement isn't the same as 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 trusting in politics over Jesus? It can actually be a uh, a, a way of living out your discipleship. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, the uh, the post liberal reaction against the kind of God and country alliance of the mid twentieth century uh, uh, actually brought a lot of uh, uh, white folks in the millennial generation to consider seriously the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of obscure books like The Politics of Jesus became, uh, you know, small-scale bestsellers among Christians because uh, people were really grappling with the way that, um, that faith uh, certainly has been over-identified with a particular partisan agenda by the religious right. And, uh, and frankly, on the other side, the kind of bland sort of, uh, you know, liberal— uh, uh, alliance of uh, uh, kind of you know the kind of niberian mid twentieth century um, uh, you know, to stand by your nation is to, uh, is, to is to be a a, a good responsible christian. Uh, that that also doesn't quite live up to the cross. And I think the main problem with that and the main place where white folks have gotten stuck, is that we simply haven't known the tradition of black Christianity in america. Mm-hmm. Uh, we We haven't known and listened to. Um, uh, the preachers like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass didn't have a degree from a theological university but had a a profound recognition of the way that the same God who led Israel out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead had brought them out of slavery into a year of jubilee and that, no, this wasn't yet the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, but but that they had a real obligation to work for a more perfect union so that people could survive you know, so that folk could get an education, so that people could have land and put food on their table. I mean, these are real issues of whether, you know, children are going to make it. And you don't, I mean, you don't have to bury too many people from your community in any generation to realize that uh, politics have consequences. Uh, people who have been enslaved knew that and, and uh, saw their faith as essential to their engagement with the Reconstruction movement, uh, folks in the in the social gospel era and around the New Deal uh, had, a, had a recognition of that, and, you know, worked hard for, against, for, you know, child labor laws and for minimum wage laws and, and all of these issues for the, you know, the right of women to vote. I mean, these uh, these issues aren't going to uh, uh, revolutionize the system tomorrow, but they can, in very real ways, uh, make life livable for people, and basically love of neighbor, I think, compels us to do what we can to make life livable, uh, especially when uh, the image of God in our neighbors is being denied by legislative edict. Um, That's when the voice of the prophets just rings out, you know, Isaiah saying, "'Woe unto you who legislate evil, who rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey.'" Uh, that that's not you know uh, that's talking to politicians mm. and uh... in some ways when that's happening and it's happening in our country and you know there's a lot of attention on the president but it's not just the president uh... there there are state legislatures there are, you know actions in congress and uh, co- congress was ready to completely cut the uh, chi- child health insurance program uh, that you know provides health insurance to millions of children uh, ready to slash, you know, a program that feeds millions of children. Uh, these these uh, pieces of legislation that um, that the freedom movement has worked for for decades. Uh, ready to slash those things so that they could give a tax cut to the wealthiest Americans. At some point, the prophets compel us to to speak out, uh, cry aloud, and spare not to say, you know, when when justice, basic justice, is being denied, and uh, and and people are struggling to survive. Uh, Christians have a place in the public square, and um, I'm glad you've registered to vote. Um, we got to learn how to stay together with coalitions of people who can who can you know make better options possible when we vote. Because uh, I understand why people are frustrated and disappointed when they look at the options that are available. But until we you know build coalitions and uh, and come together and stand together uh w- w- we don't have much place to talk i mean in the in the last presidential election donald trump got about 60 million votes hillary clinton uh uh lost the electoral college but got about 63 million votes and there were about 100 million people who didn't vote so way more than the people who voted for either of them were the people who stayed at home either because they don't think it makes a difference or they're just not engaged
2: hmm. yeah that was me that 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 was me absolutely um Go ahead, Steven. What do you? So one of the ways you encourage us uh, to to take up our cross is to is to begin to confront the powers and accept the consequences. Mm -hmm. And 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 you share all these just convicting, challenging stories of you know uh, protests and uh, you know several times you've been arrested. And 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 for me, I I honestly I almost just kind of despair sometimes when I think about this because I go, I've got three kids. I'm the only one who has a job in my, in my household right now. Like, do I, like, do I, am I to become a protester and then risk arrest? And then what about my job? I want my kids. Like, how do how do you help people that feel sort of paralyzed uh, and unable to engage politically to, 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 how do you move them out of that?
1: Well, there are lots of ways to get involved uh Many of them, uh, the whole family can do to, can do together. You know, our family um, has been really involved since um, 2017 and I've got kids from uh four to fourteen. but our family has been really involved in uh, hosting uh someone in sanctuary at our church because. Uh, even though he had lived here for 34 years, has a family here, is actually a pastor. He pastors a church here. Um, uh, the the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement were going to deport him because of uh, um, a deportation order that um, is still on the books from 1986. Gosh. And, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats before had, you know, had, had been willing to overlook that, but, but not this administration. They said zero tolerance. So, So, you know, they ripped this guy out of his community. So we invited him into the church as a space of sanctuary, which, um, you know, which is a lot of practical stuff, but, you know, families eat together and, uh, you know, figure out how to make life happen. So, you know, doing that with another person um, is a possible kind of thing. And we've really gotten to know his family. So anyway, I was just telling the story to say that um, every night now when we say our prayers, uh, our eight-year-old prays for uh, Jose, and then she always says, "And for everyone else who's in his situation." Mm, wow! And um, it just strikes me that it shaped her whole consciousness of um, of what's happening in our world, and she she realizes that a lot of people are impacted by this, and 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 she can't imagine. I was just talking to her about this the other day at breakfast. She can't imagine why people wouldn't vote, because she said voting is a chance. And, you know, she, she understands enough about the Congress to realize that voting is a chance to have somebody in the world who would who would who would say, no, that's wrong. Uh, you know, so, some sort of counter force. That's not going to be perfect, but, so, you know, somebody who would stand up to uh, this uh, radical anti-immigrant agenda that um, that has taken over our uh, federal government. So, um I think there's all kinds of ways you can get involved, and uh, sometimes, I mean, there will always be consequences. Sometimes those consequences might mean going to jail. Frankly, if we're honest about the Christian tradition, sometimes uh, the consequence is that you get killed, and I don't know any way to um, um, uh, imagine how um, that makes sense unless we believe in the resurrection, which is a way of saying we believe that God can make possible things that we can't imagine. And so, you know, uh, I think we have to trust all kinds of little resurrections to make our life possible as we're, uh, as best as we can, being faithful to God, which doesn't mean, you know, having some kind of complex that you have to do everything, but, but just taking the steps that you can with your people to be faithful to what you see around you and what the gospel calls us to.
0: Hmm. Thanks, Jonathan. I know we hit one, maybe one other question here. I know you got to hop in a moment. It's easy to see certainly just, you know, log on to Twitter or, you know, any news network. I mean, it's easy to see the, the, you know, the powers that be that seem to be very dominant and the narratives that are kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the kind of you know the the headline narratives in this country which seem heavy and divided and and certainly they are um you I would imagine have a really good temperature of like what's happening in the capital C church Across the country to engage with with these very issues—racial, political, social, etc.—and um, I know that a lot that you're involved with directly is is you know is, is a part of that. For our listeners that are curious and you know that are thinking about okay, what what are people? What are the things I don't see that's happening all around me in in the name of Jesus in hmm. the kingdom in the church? Like, give us some insight for those who maybe aren't so aware of of what you're seeing. What's the what, what what's your temperature? on the church and and you know folks interests and and you know heart for this kind of thing and um and even maybe where maybe specifically where you might even point people that are interested in in getting more involved directly
2: yeah
1: well i see the church alive and bringing life to the world wherever uh, psalm 118 is being lived out Um, we often sing the song in church, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. But uh, the song doesn't quote the whole psalm, and so we often forget that just before that great celebration of uh, God's presence among us, the psalm says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the rejoicing that I see happening the real life that I see bubbling up in the church is 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 always in the places where people who have been rejected are at the center of what the church is building. And um, Mm. I've already mentioned the sanctuary movement. I think that's a hugely important one that, you know, the people who are being rejected in this country, beautiful faith communities and churches, but not just churches, a lot. You know, one of the, I was just with the sanctuary church the other day and they said, you know, this has been an incredible way for our congregation to engage. But they said, uh, um, the other thing is that it's brought all these neighbors in who, you know, some of them aren't even Christian, they're not interested in joining the church, but they were really interested in being part of this thing that we're doing. And so they said about, you know, 20% of the people who are participating in their sanctuary gathering these days are not even members of their church, but just neighbors who wanted to be part of, of, of something like that. So I'd, I'd point folks to that. I, I, I see a lot of incredible work happening in the church around the movement to to end mass incarceration, uh, I think the Christian Community Development Association has organized some really incredible stuff around that. The, um, uh, but a but lot of local groups who are who are coming together around people who are coming home from prison and realizing that it's it, not just about some kind of ministry to help those people get back on their feet, but but that there really is an opportunity to be part of the most vital thing that's happening in the church when we, we recognize that, that that these precious children of God are really leading something. And, um, there's a, a brother here in Durham named William Elmore who came home from prison some years ago and, 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 leads a project called Church Beyond the Walls. And it really just, a. Beautiful vision for me of how uh, people who have been incarcerated and who have been, you know, uh, really othered by this system of mass incarceration. Uh, Michelle Alexander called it the new Jim Crow. She said, you know, it's it's not legal to discriminate based on race anymore, but we can still discriminate according to the law uh, um, against those who have been incarcerated. And and the 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 groups of people who have been incarcerated are disproportionately black and brown, disproportionately poor. But those people, many of them inside of the prison, have found the good news that God. Is for them and I think are, are leading the church in some uh, incredible ways. So I think that's a, a powerful movement that's happening. And, and, and then finally, I would just say that, you know, a lot of this comes together for me in the Poor People's Campaign. It's an intentionally intersectional movement. So it includes, you know, these folks who are organizing around a living wage, organizing around ending mass incarceration, organizing around immigrants' rights, and um, uh, but but all coming together to say that we want to have a moral vision for the common good, and we want to do that, you know, linked together uh, with um, with other people of faith, but also with our, you know, neighbors who don't share our faith, with with people across race lines, across class lines. Um, all of this to, to be together and to know that um, that God is making something new possible. That that's where I find hope. Mm.
0: Well, Jonathan, thank you. Thank you so much, not only for for the book, which will point folks to again, reconstructing the gospel, but just your work and daily practice, and uh, and t- for tonight. Thanks so much for carving out the time, and uh, we we certainly hope to keep in touch. And we're following you not only literally on Twitter, but uh, oh, which we appreciate how active you are, um, but also from a distance. And and uh, <laughs> great, grace and peace with all your work, my brother. Hey,
1: bless you and all the laity.
0: <laughs> Thanks have a great night great to have you we'll be in touch bye now.